The following Future Conceive podcast is sponsored by the Virtual Education Committee of the Society for the Study of Reproduction, with the mission to develop virtual programs that will aid in the education, highlighting the careers of society members, bringing technology updates and the latest scientific advancements in reproductive biology. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. My name is Andrew Mazaluski from the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we have the honor to interview this year's recipient of the SSR Research Award. The, research, the SSR Research Award recognizes one SSR member who actively participates in many activities of SSR and for publishing outstanding papers over the previous six years. This award focuses on the development of new knowledge in a creative manner that expands our understanding of reproductive technology, has developed new and improved experimental methodologies, and importantly, demonstrates outstanding leadership qualities. I can't think of anyone who deserves this award more than Dr. Marisa Bartolome. Congratulations, Marisa. Marisa needs no introduction, but for new members of SSR, she is a professor of cell and developmental biology and professor of genetics here at UPenn School of Medicine. She is also director of the Institute for Regenerative Medicine Program in Reproductive Medicine, as well as co-director of the Epigenetic Institute here at the Paramount School of Medicine. Marisa has received numerous awards, too many to fit in this introduction, but to list a few, the Society for Women's Health Research Medtronics Prize for Contributions to Women's Health, the Genetic Society Medal for the UK Genetic Society, the Jane Glick Graduate School Teaching Award. She is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and was elected member at large of the Section of Biological Sciences. And most recently, she has become a member of the National Academy of Sciences in 2021. The Bartolome Lab is interested in genomic imprinting and epigenetic gene regulation in mammalian development through the use of humanized models of human imprinting syndromes to investigate various disorders. Additionally, the lab is interested in environmental exposure and assisted reproductive technologies, ART. Exposure to commonly used compounds are associated with a variety of human disorders. The Bartolome lab uses mouse models to mimic human conditions to investigate phenotypes and mechanisms leading to these disorders. Dr. Bartolome, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and how you ended up here today? Sure. Um... So I, I grew up in, um, in suburban Washington, D.C., and um, the first in my family to graduate from college. I went to University of Maryland and then went to Johns Hopkins um, School of Medicine as a, for a Ph.D., where I studied uh, gene regulation, and then did my postdoctoral work at Princeton with Shirley Tillman, where I first started working on imprinting. And then after that, I came to University of Pennsylvania as an assistant professor, where I have been ever since, and as and working on the things that you really beautifully summarized. Great. Um, and can you tell us how how you got involved in reproductive technologies and uh, and are now a reproductive biologist? Sure. So pr probably two ways, two parallel pathways. The first is that my lab was really interested in understanding how imprints are set. So how genomic imprints, they affect a small number of genes, just a few hundred genes in the mammalian genome. And they are actually marked with their parental origin in the gametes. And then, and then that pattern of differential expression is maintained throughout the life of the animal. And so most of the work 
in setting and resetting imprints occurs in the germline. And so we sort of followed a que- our question, which was, how does this happen in the germline? Looking at um, gametes, looking at DNA methylation, um, acquisition and reprogramming. And, and even more, a second place, which is what we'll talk about a little bit, probably a little bit later, is how we was started to try and understand how imprinting was first sat in the embryo. And that's um, sort of how we got involved in looking at assisted reproduction because we had to generate F1 hybrid embryos by doing um, IVF and looking at imprints that way. So, so I guess you can say that I became a reproductive biologist in, because I was searching for the answer to the question rather than starting from an interest in reproductive biology and then looking for questions. Oh, that's a that's a that's an interesting uh, segue into how uh, you are where you are today. Um, so you mentioned a few times genomic imprinting. Can you help us define when you say genomic imprinting? Can you help us define what you mean by that? Sure. And so as, as I briefly, quickly said was genomic imprinting is mammalian specific. It affects maybe just about 200 genes in the genome and maybe more. And these particular genes are expressed either from the chromosome that you inherit from your mother or the chromosome that you inherit from your father. And so these genes then are really the reason why we don't have parthenogenetic um, development in mammals, meaning that we need both maternal and paternal contributions to have normal development. And this is because of these genes that are expressed either from sperm originally or the egg. And so those um, that's, that's basically what is going on in imprinting. And the imprints are, are DNA methylation, among other sequences. And so that's what we've been studying for many years. Interesting. Um, can you tell us how studying genomic imprinting uh, specifically impacts development and reproduction in in the context of your research? Sure. Again, so um, because you have this subset of genes that's only expressed either from the maternally derived chromosome or the paternally derived chromosome, there really is a failure of uniparental development. So these particular genes are marked in the germline epigenetically because it has to be, um, they have to know that the allele came from mom or the allele came from dad. And so because you don't um, make mutations in the DNA, the idea is that you epigenetically mark the parental origin in eggs or sperm. And so the way we feel about it is, although we are extremely interested in understanding what are the sequences that confer this unusual pattern of expression, what kind of modifications um, happen, and, and also that there are human imprinting disorders that involve these disruptions in regulation, we really feel that imprinted genes are a great model for epigenetic gene regulation, which epigenetics is really the way that that you have lineage specification and gene regulation in general in, in animals. So we use imprinted genes as a great model for studying epigenetics also. 
So I'm interested. I know your research also involves assisted reproductive technologies. Can you tell us uh, how your research eventually evolved to that and what connections there were from imprinting to what you're studying as well? Yeah, so this was this is actually probably the main reason I landed in the reproductive biology field. And so when we were first studying imprint imprinting and when imprints were acquired, whether they were in the germline or in the early embryo, we needed to generate embryos that we could distinguish maternal and paternal alleles. And so we used mouse genetics and we used divergent strains of mice that had polymorphisms and you could distinguish black six from castaneous strains of mice. So you could distinguish, distinguish maternal and paternal alleles. And so in order to really look at imprinting, we had to generate lots and lots of early embryos, one cell, two cell blastocysts. And, and we did this by natural matings, lots and lots of natural matings. And in those days, you needed a lot of embryos to look at gene expression because we didn't have great single cell um, kinds of technologies. And so we generated a lot of embryos and we looked in blastocysts and we saw the gene that I work on, mostly H19, was beautifully imprinted in blastocysts. It was expressed only from the maternal allele. But about the same time, another group published a paper that said, no, H19 was not imprinted in blastocysts. It was imprinted later on. And the way they generated their embryos was by using in vitro fertilization. And so basically, after a couple of years of trying to sort out what was going on, we discovered that the, the difference between the two was generating embryos in vivo by natural matings versus generating embryos in IVF and culturing them under suboptimal conditions. And so that's when we started to look at um, IVF and assisted reproductive technologies. And in fact, it was just a, for originally, it was a mechanism to try and understand, well, what if something's biologically expressed or not imprinted, what does the epigenetic state look like versus something that was monoallelically expressed? What does that epigenetic state look like? And that's where we started to say, oh, DNA methylation is important. And then this just morphed into studying assisted reproduction because we started to see in the literature examples of people with imprinting disorders, human imprinting disorders that were conceived through assisted reproduction. And, and sort of the rest is history after studying this for 20 years with great collaborators, including um, Richard Schultz, who did a lot to get me more involved in SSR, in fact. Great. So that was a, the H19 results, uh, the in vivo versus in vitro culture. That's that's pretty surprising. Um, how large of an impact do you think we could expect to see similar things in uh, human uh, artificial reproductive technologies? Uh, and where do you where do you kind of see the field heading in terms of expanding your research and, and the discoveries that your research has kind of paved the way for? So I really think that. Um, I really feel that our research sort of um, made people step back and realize that just because you could get an embryo using um, art, sister reproductive technologies, and that you could get a birth at it didn't, didn't mean that you could just move forward 
and employ any kind of technology possible. And it made people realize that some of the phenotypes they were observing in humans, and, and again, we use mouse models, but we go back and forth with our colleagues who do um, human IVF, it made people realize that they really needed to take a step back, use um, better media, use optimal oxygen conditions, um, you know, adjust the culture time of an embryo. Um, it, there's a lot of different, uh, I would say, technologies that are employed in art and, and, and it allowed, it, it really helped people to just say, okay, maybe this is not a great idea. Maybe we need to be more careful. And I think that, that people really do look at art and look at IVF and look at their techniques they're employing now and see, is this necessary? Should we look, think a little bit more differently about freezing embryos, about a pre-implantation genetic testing when it may or may not be indicated? So I, I feel that using the mouse model in parallel with human studies where where we can look at outcomes, we obviously can't look at humans prior to to birth, but with mice, we can do interrogate all different stages. The mouse work beautifully parallels the human human, so we can really go back in and 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 test new procedures. Yeah, being able to inform on on uh, human conditions and human IVF is is amazing work. Thank you. Um, and part of this award, just to segue to make sure we cover everything, part of this award is uh, great leadership. Um, so to kind of take a, uh, a switch gears a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about how you mentor, what's your mentoring philosophy, and, and really how you engage with uh, the community and people who are training to be reproductive biologists? Yeah, so I think I've really always enjoyed working with students and postdocs with trainees at every level, not only in my lab and other labs. And so I've um, taken on a lot of teaching. I actually run a training grant at Penn that has 10 slots um, per year on it. And so I do um, really enjoy working with young younger trainees since I am smart enough to realize that's the future of our field is to engage the best and the brightest. And the question about mentoring philosophy, I mean, I really feel that there's not a one size fits all, that that um, everybody has a different type of mentoring that works for them, a different type of communication. So I sort of work with each person on a um, one by one basis. Some like to meet, sort of show up at my door with their computer in their hand to show me the data. Other people like to have formal meetings. And as time goes on, I think we work through it and see what works for us. Um, again, I have an open door policy. I'm really pathological about responding to emails and, and texts at all times. So I like to make sure that people know that I'm around and can help if they need it. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. So um, I once again like to thank you for sharing your advice and wisdom and letting everyone know more about you. And uh, congratulations on the award, of course. I'm really looking forward to uh, what you could do in the next six years and the six years beyond that. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank Marisa for this interview. And everyone, have a great day. 
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. This music is produced by Bob Hills and Pruitt Pell. Thank you.